This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hey friends, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kristen Srewer. You're listening to episode 76. Today's guest on the show is a hilarious social justice-minded mama four, a writer and psychotherapist, Kristen Howerton. Her journey to motherhood was not easy. She became a mama four in four years through both adoption and natural birth. You may know her from her book or social media, Rage Against the Minivan. And by the way, yes, she does drive a minivan now. In this episode, she shares about her family, her activism around racial justice, talking to her kids about race, and how she's managing pandemic life. Kristen's perspective on life is refreshing and funny, and I hope you love my conversation with her. Welcome, Kristen, to the Illuminate Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I am super happy to have you here. You um, have been somebody that I have followed throughout COVID. So you have certainly <laughs> helped <laughs> with a, a fun, a real my parenting mindset through this very interesting year that we've had. Yeah, it's been a wild year. A year. We're basically up on a year yeah. of this. Yeah, pretty close. It's hard to believe. I, I guess I never thought that we would be in this for a year. I don't think any of us did. And and I think it might be best that way because I, <laughs> you know, I think um, had we known that from the outset, I think we all would have freaked out a little bit more than we did. <laughs> I think that's probably right. Yeah. And of course, now, you know, I think most recently you've posted that you guys have been to the beach and that you're wearing shorts and short sleeves. And I am sitting here in Indianapolis with a space heater (laughs) in my office bundled up. So I am jealous that you have those nice warm escapes. I do have to say, I think that those of us that live in warmer climates do have an advantage in the pandemic because we can keep going outside. And I I can't imagine how cooped up people are feeling who are living in places where they can't do that. Yeah, I have one of the co-hosts of this podcast. She's doing this thousand hours outside mm. challenge. She's got four boys and they they're good. They're brave in the cold no matter what every day. Awesome. So which is is good. Yeah. We have a 10-month-old, so it's felt a little bit harder to get out when it's like five degrees outside. If it's closer to the freezing level, we're good there. (laughs) So, Kristen, you have um, classified yourself as a, let me see if I can actually say this right, a skilled um, catastrophizer. (laughs) Catastrophizer. (laughs) Um, Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, it's, it's both a joke and also a little bit true. You know, I, I can't, I tend to run anxious and I can make a catastrophe out of any situation, which I think is true for a lot of us. You know, I tend to future cast and worry and, you know, I've got, I I mean, 
case in point, yesterday I had like a weird red blood vessel in my eye. And, you know, it's most likely nothing, but I project it to a stroke, you know? (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) So then the pandemic hit and somebody who has this skill, what happens? Yeah, I think that the pandemic was not great for anybody who suffers from anxiety. You know, I think it took a lot for me, a lot of self-monitoring, a lot of self-care, and even still, I I really did struggle with anxiety and insomnia throughout. Mm -hmm. I think so many of us have and continue to do so. It's it's real. It's present every day. Yeah. So, Kristen, now you... Um, so I know about you through your hilarious real book, Rage Against the Minivan. <laughs> and for we'll link it in the show notes, but it is a really good read for I you I don't even think you need to be a parent to read this book because you just have a lot of insights on sort of when you when life is good enough, right? Mm-hmm. When when you can assume that. Um and you've been through a lot in your life. So you have, tell me a little bit about your family. You have four kids. I have four kids. Um, and it's funny because I even did a timeline in the book, like a visual timeline of when they joined my family, because it's a little bit out of order, but my oldest, um, we adopted from foster care when he was six months old. And then I had a biological child. And then we started the process to adopt a child from Haiti Um, And during that process, I had another biological child. So my middle child came to the family last. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And four kids in four years, right? Something like that. Four kids in four years. Yes. It was definitely a case of like, you know, I, I dealt with infertility and pregnancy loss for a long time and just really wanted to have kids. And then four years after the first child came, I had four. (laughs) 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 It's funny how the world works that way. Yeah. So walk me through a little bit about your process around adopting, adopting a son who was out of foster care um, Mm -hmm. and why you chose that route and, and what the process was there. Yeah. I mean, I had worked around the foster care system. I had worked in a group home and I had worked as a social worker visiting families who were in the foster care system. So I knew that there were a lot of children waiting for families. Um, I, I knew that there was just, you know, a shortage of parents for these mm-hmm. children, particularly for kids that weren't newborns or for kids who were not white. And so when I decided I wanted to adopt, that was just a really clear path for me. I just felt like I wanted to adopt a kid who was waiting for parents. Mm -hmm. And tell me about, you know, you're a white mom, you've adopted a black baby. What was, what did you do to prepare? What have you, what, what has that journey been like? Yeah, I mean, I, I, prepared the best I could, but you know, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I read books and we went to classes. Um, and I certainly spoke with friends of color. Um, but I had a steep learning curve. I think any parent does because, you know, it's all theory until you are, you know, involved in the lived experience of your own child. Um, so it's, it's, I'm learning every day. I mean, I'm still not there, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, and I think that that is, 
probably the number one trait that's needed for transracial adoption is just a willingness to keep learning and to keep acknowledging that you don't know everything and that you need help. You know, I, I can't raise two black children in a vacuum by myself as a white person. I absolutely need and accept and am grateful for help from others. Mm -hmm. And then what's your oldest son's name? Japta. Japta. And then, um, and so are does he have a relationship with his birth parents? No, um, his birth parents are deceased. Okay. And then your, the other, your other son you adopted Mm -hmm. now, how much younger is he? So Kembe's two years younger than Jafta, and we adopted him from Haiti, and okay. his birth parents are also deceased. Okay. And then did you, has have you spent time in Haiti going back to his community that he's from? We have. We have. In fact, I'm sure we would have gone this year were it not for the pandemic. But yes, we do try to go back every couple of years, and we, you know, we still have people that we know there, um, and we visit his orphanage, and yeah, we, we love visiting Haiti. That's awesome. What was the process going? I mean, so foster care adoption, then to an international adoption, those have to be very different. (laughs) They are different. um, And they are uniquely stressful in their own ways. You know, we adopted from foster care. And that can be a very fraught experience because, you know, there's always a possibility that a child could be reunified with their birth parents, which I am for. Um, and you know, that possibility looked likely for a while and then ultimately was not, um, which, you know, I had no voice in that decision or, you know, I wasn't even privy to that decision at all. But with, um, with international adoption, particularly from Haiti at the time, it just took a really long time. And so we met him when he was six months old and he came home at three and a half. So it took three full years for that adoption process to be completed. And that was really hard because he wasn't living with us. Um, and so all we could do was visit. So did you go regularly to visit him um, within that three-year time span? We did. We did. And then on that last visit was when the earthquake happened. So <sighs> we were there, my myself and my daughter. Um, and then with Kembe, we, we were all in the earthquake together. Um, but yes, so we visited quite a bit so that he would know us, which was very helpful because, you know, the way that he came home, he ended up being evacuated. It wasn't, it wasn't at all how we thought we thought we would go there and pick him up and, you know, say goodbyes and it would be very ceremonious and slow. And, you know, it ended up being rather traumatic. Like he and a bunch of other kids were put on a plane by military and, Um, it was really good that we had visited so much because when he arrived at the States, we were familiar faces. I I can't imagine what that would have been like. And then him arriving to strangers Mm -hmm. who were his parents. So I, I'm very grateful that we had the opportunity to really get to know him over those years. That's great. And especially, I mean, three and a half, they, they're, that's, they know what's going on around them. Yeah. It's a really... I thought that that was a really difficult age for him to experience all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then did he speak Creole? He did. He did. And so it was funny because we had learned, we'd been learning Creole, you know, we had been, um, but once he arrived in the States, he very much did not want to speak Creole and he wanted to speak English. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, he is that kid, you know, that is just a big part of his personality. He wants to fit in. He wants to, you know, not he I think he just wanted to 
talk like everybody else. And so it was funny. We would be talking him in Creole and he would answer us back in English. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he learned English really fast. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially if he's just to have that feeling of being fully integrated that he was able to pick it up. I mean, I guess at that age, it is easier to pick up than when you're much older. But even so, I think they usually say it's zero to two is the easiest to pick up multiple languages. Yeah. And I think, you know, he picked up some English in the orphanage. Mm -hmm. There were certainly English speakers who came in and out. Um, And so, you know, I think he had a a little bit of a head start there. But yeah, he learned English very fast. Okay. How did you, did your kid, did the other kids learn Creole? We all learned, you know, all the kids learned just some basics. Okay. Um, Yeah. And You know, I thought we would all be speaking Creole for a while, but it 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 went away pretty fast. Okay. (laughs) Now, do you guys are there any Haitian traditions or holidays or things that you incorporate into your family life now? You know, it's interesting because Kembe is both Haitian and black. You know, I mean, he's a black American. And so I think and, and I've actually asked him this and he would say this. I think he identifies you know, where he lives and in the groups that he's in more as black than Mm -hmm. as Haitian. So Mm -hmm. the traditions that we tend to incorporate in the home are, I think, more around black American traditions, um, because those are the circles that he's in. And those are the opportunities that that we have here. Um, He's involved and both my boys are involved in mentoring with 100 black men, which is fantastic. And so they have a lot of things going on throughout the year. So we tend to lean more towards that, although anytime we can go get Haitian food or Caribbean food at all, um, we are there. Uh, but I think the ties to Haiti, we've tried more in just visiting. You know, mm-hmm. I think that nothing replaces, like no fabrication that I can create in my home is going to um, is is going to even come close to him being able to really visit um, the country. Yeah, I think that's right just being immersed in the yeah. culture that's there and taking yeah. in the sights and the sounds and the smells. Yeah. And- I mean, I do, I have tried my best to learn some Haitian dishes and we do, we do those every so often, you know, and they love, um, in fact, it's funny, all the kids really love when I make plantains. Um, and so anytime there's like a school assignment where they have to bring something from another culture, it's like, Oh, we're going to make plantains. Like you know, <laughs> that's the big, Everyone gets excited about that. And then I have to make a double batch so they can eat them at home. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Tell me about the 100 Black Men organization that they're involved in. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it is it is a mentoring program. Well, it's a it's a program for for the community at large, but they have a mentoring program um, that is really their whole mantra is what they see is what they'll be. And so they have you know, professional black men come and they learn STEM and they learn finances and they learn black history. Um, They, you know, talk quite a bit about racism and stereotypes and, you know, how to navigate the world as black men. And it's just been a really incredible thing to have them be a part of. That's awesome. I really like that the mantra of what they see is what they'll be. Yeah. That's really powerful. And it is, it really goes back to you know, the idea that representation matters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in every level of society, right? In government leadership, in your community, in your family, like these, all these kinds of things really matter. And that's, I, 
that's, that really resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I love it. So you have, um, you do a lot of advocacy work, um, on systemic racism and I would just love to hear a bit about what you've what you've been up to lately, um, what kind of advice you would give to other parents who are trying to make sure that they can help their children break this cycle? Yeah. I mean, I think the number one thing is that we as adults need to learn to be comfortable talking about race and racism. And I think a lot of us, especially, you know, Gen X, millennials, we were raised with parents who were well-meaning, but we got messages like, well, don't talk about race or just be colorblind. And, you know, so that we didn't really grow up learning the language of talking about racism. We were kind of given messages that like, it'll go away if you don't look at it, which we all know that doesn't work with anything. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so I, I think, you know, first of all, as, as the adults, as the parents learning to be really comfortable talking about it, because if we're uncomfortable, they'll pick up on that. You know, I mean, if we sit down to have the race, a race conversation with our kids and we're nervous and sweating and bumbling, that's not going to leave a great message. And so, I think we have to learn to talk about it. I think we have to educate ourselves. And there's so many resources at this point to do that. There's just really no excuse. And then I think parents need to see it as a, an ongoing conversation. So it's something that you talk about all the time. And, and it's, you know, it's kind of like sex. It's like we used to think like you had the sex talk. And now we know, actually, it's better if we have like 20 to 30 <laughs> sex talks with our kids, right at every different age and developmental stage. And it's actually more helpful if it's organic, and we pause the TV show or, you know, and I think it's mm -hmm. the same with race conversations. You know, it's like, when the Capitol insurrection happened a few weeks ago, you know, we're watching the news and we pause and say, like, how would this be different if these were black people? Like, how, what do you think would be different? And let's let's look back at footage of some Black Lives Matter protests that happened at the same place. And what did the guards, you know, what was the posture of the guards for that versus this? Um, so I think finding those times and those ways um, to talk with kids and then finding media um, that, that kids can engage in. And I think, you know, for younger kids, there's lots of great picture books and things like that. But when you have teenagers, my goodness, I mean, there's so many amazing programs that you can watch. We love watching the daily show. They do a great job of talking about race. Um, we really like, um, W. Kamal Bell's show. Um, there's so many opportunities to, you know, kind of expose teenagers to interesting conversations around race. There's another show my kids like called, I think it's called Thug Adjacent. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, you know, just interesting. And what's what's fun for us is there's a lot of comedians talking about race. And so uh, like the Dave Chappelle recent special, you know, where it's it's funny and it's engaging for teenagers, but it's really powerful and profound at the same time. Yeah. How do you approach the conversations with your daughters who are mm -hmm. white and yeah. your sons who are black? Do you, do you talk together? Do you have separate conversations? Do you have different kinds of resources? I mean, how would, how do, how, what does the approach look like? Yeah. I mean, we usually talk all together, but I think, you know, again, it's me being comfortable with the concepts and, you know, it, white parents, when they're talking to white kids, it's like, you can help them understand that like, okay, I can look at my white privilege and I can see that this is a systemic problem, but I can do that without thinking like, 
I'm therefore a terrible person, right? Or, or well, therefore I should feel guilty and bad. Um, and so, you know, just continuing to have those conversations too of like, what does our privilege look like? And what does it look like to lay it down? And what does it look like to use it for good? And what does it look like to invite people to the table of privilege? Like, how can we do that? Um, and so, I, you know, I just think that us, again, having those natural organic conversations all the time has been really helpful. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, it will be interesting to see as your all four of your kids, you know, become adults, right? What are their ages now? 11, 14, 14, and 16. Okay. Man, you are in it, huh? I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as they become adults and to see what kind of conversations. I mean, even obviously they're, they're you know, probably emerging, but what, how they lead conversations, how they lead by their actions because yeah. they've been part of these organic, open um, house where it's comfortable to talk about it and it has to be talked about. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think I already see just a lot of emerging, emerging activism from all of them, um, you know, which, which feels good. And I also, you know, I take them with me when we go to Black Lives Matter protests or, you know, they've, they've all been involved with advocacy stuff with me as well. That's awesome. So Kristen, you started your career as a family therapist, right? This is like way before kids. Yes. Okay. And so what does that mean? A family therapist? Yeah. I mean, in the state of California, it's, it's interesting. Every state kind of has a different designation, but it's just a licensed mental health worker. And in the state of California, it's marriage and family therapist, but you know, it's just general psychotherapy. So I worked with couples, I worked with individuals and I worked with families just doing therapy. And how long did you do that? About a decade. A decade. Okay. And then Mm -hmm. what, what led you away from that? What did you do next? Yeah. I mean, I, I was working as a therapist when I had kids and, you know, it was just becoming more and more difficult. And as Kembe came home, so, you know, and then I had four little ones at home, it was just becoming increasingly difficult to deal with the emotional needs of my kids, which were high, you know, and that, that is the case for many people who adopt, especially children who are not, you know, newborns, like, you know, they may have some attachment injuries or some other special mm-hmm. needs that require a little bit more of your attention. And so I was definitely feeling that in my home, like I was doing a lot of therapeutic parenting at home. And I was just finding myself really depleted to then leave my home where I'm doing like a lot of attachment and engagement and then go to a job where I'm doing those same kinds of things. And so I started pulling back a little bit and then I started writing. And as the writing took off, I kind of transitioned to blogging as, you know, how I was making a living as opposed to counseling. Ah, okay. And what year was that? I mean, it was, let's see, probably between 2007 and 2010 was when I was making that transition. Okay. And that's, and it basically grew from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Cause now, I mean, cause you have your podcast, you've got your book out you're on all sorts of parenting circuits. Um, I really appreciated your piece. I, I, maybe it was in the, was it in December from the New York times? Yes. And it, I mean, it, my kids are younger than yours, but just thinking about the all the decisions you had to think about sending your kids off to go play with their friends outside. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And 
gosh, I mean, there's just so many decisions that we all have to make these days. I know. Um, and it's, it's really hard. And I, you know, I don't always have the right answers. I don't, I, I don't always know what's right. It's like finding that balance between community care, which is important to me. I don't, you know, I don't want my family to be responsible for spreading the virus, but at the same time, like figuring out how they can not feel completely isolated. It's a hard balance. Yeah. You said in that article that you oriented your home to be one where all the kids came to your home. What does that look like? Tell, teach me. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, I, I think one aspect is just, you know, we have a pool and we have trampoline and we have the skate ramps, you know, things like that. But I really, I feel like beyond those things, it's more of just like making sure kids know that they're welcomed, you know? And so I, <laughs> I mean, what it sometimes looked like was a lack of boundaries just in terms of like, yes, you can spend the night and okay, I guess you can spend another night. And, you know, we, (laughs) before the pandemic, I mean, this house was full of kids all the time, all the time. And it's funny because, you know, my kids, um, my kids who are in middle school, like they would have friends over and we would go down and talk to them late at night, like 10 p.m., 11 p.m. You know, we might just be get, grabbing our tea or grabbing our coffee. And they would sit and talk with us for like an hour. And I think, you know, there's something to be said for kids want to be seen and heard, you know, mm-hmm. even when they're in that cool stage, even when they're teenagers, like when they're really getting your undivided attention and interest, I think that does a lot for teenagers. And so I think, you know, our house felt like a safe place. And, you know, we had kids talk to us about really serious things. And so it's been really sad to kind of have to close up our house and not have that extended family that we had before. Yeah. That is just the hardest part about this. I know. I hate it. I really hate it. Have you found any other connection points that work? I mean, we have done, you know, some backyard gatherings Mm -hmm. where, um, and what I have found works, um, is that you just have to, there has to be assigned seating. Like teenagers can't monitor. <laughs> so, you know, they can't, I mean, adults can't. Yeah, and so, sure. you know, they show up and you've got, you know, a seat for them and they sit in that seat until they leave and people leave their masks on. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've done some things like that. We've done like an art night. We've done like a mafia game night um, charades, you know, where everybody's stuff is at their seat when they arrive. So we've tried to find some safe ways and, you know, my kids skate, which in theory should be safe, you know, skateboarding with friends. Um, my other, my girls have gone on bike rides to the beach with friends. So just trying to find those creative options where they can connect, but also be safe. Yeah. I read the book, The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. She was Hmm. also on Brene Brown's podcast. And I really liked, I mean, she just, in general, the book was like, was definitely written pre-pandemic, but just about finding purpose in when you gather, whatever it is, whether it's a dinner party or a baby shower or celebration. I mean, having purpose behind it and and almost like objectives to it. But it Uh definitely, I I was thinking a lot about that with, you know, the number of Zooms that we're doing or when you're doing a backyard hangout, how you can be really intentional about the time. Mm -hmm. And so assigned seating fits right in there. Yes. (laughs) You know, and just having, or, or even, you know, how do you make those connection points when you are virtual and you're, you are trying Mm -hmm. to connect people together? 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of cool things have come out of this. I mean, the kids are playing among us with friends, you know, which is a way they can connect online or, you know, they're, they're finding games they can play online. Um, but you know, I think it's, it's tough because I think we all have some zoom fatigue as well. You know? <laughs> yes. I mean, my kids were like, you know, they, uh, particularly my girls are like really into theater, but mid year I was like, Hey, do you guys want to sign up for your acting classes? You know, which they've done for years. They love these acting classes and they're like, no, I don't want to do another single thing online. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> like tell me when they're in person again. And I'm like, I feel that. I feel you. I know. I know. My husband just often refuses to be on video Zoom. He's like, I just yeah. can't I just can't <laughs> always be on video Zoom. <laughs> it, it you know, there's a, a special tax, I think, in being on video, especially when you can see yourself. Yes. <laughs> I wish that these, you know, I wish that all these platforms would have an option where you can turn off because it's it's like staring in a mirror all day. And, you know, then you're, you're thinking about your appearance, you're thinking about what face you're making, you know what I mean? Like you're, it's, it's actually very distracting on an interpersonal relationship, right. I think. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Or just anticipating, oh, what calls am I going to have today that I'm going to have to be on video and how yeah. presentable should I be from the shoulders up, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I have definitely sat with pajama bottoms on and a business shirt on the top. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I know that's like the pandemic outfit uh-huh. of, uh, uh-huh. it'll be interesting to see how fashion evolves going into the world being normal again, but it, it probably will. won't be as formal as my guess. I, yeah. I, I think not. I think we're all like, <laughs> were jeans really our best option? They're really binding. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I have kind of a funny question. So you started this Instagram handle called asshole parents. Yes. What happened to it? Why is that not still going? It is. It. I had to. It's funny. I um, Facebook, for whatever reason, banned the name. It might be because oh. there was a, a curse word in the title. Um. So it's it's uh, there, but it's now under Raging Against the Minivan. But it's still uh, all this. Okay. All right. Because I went yes. to go look it up, and it the last post is like 2018 and I'm like I have probably a thousand photos that I could add to (laughs) this (laughs) it is still there it's still there the the hashtag is still really active but okay the hashtag all right okay the actual handle is now at Rage Against the Minivan okay all right got it (laughs) (laughs) because I was like I I can feel this these are this feels like my life at least once Uh a day right Did you create that as like an outlet for raising four kids that all showed up within a year? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, or four it years. was like, I was just in that stage of like toddler ingratitude where you're just spending all day really trying to make life good for your children. And they're just mad at you all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they just hated me all the time. Like everything I did led to tears, <laughs> you know, like you give them a burrito, but it has a piece of cilantro in it. So they're crying or the thing that really, um, the, the one that set off the asshole parents hashtag was I had given my daughter, I, I had planned a tea party for her and her stuffed animals and everything was pink. And I cut her sandwich into shapes and I made her her favorite pink smoothie, but I gave her a straw that was the wrong color. And she threw herself on the floor. Mm. Yeah. In the middle of the party in a princess dress. And mm-hmm. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't do anything right by these kids. <laughs> yep. I know that feeling well. When do they grow out of that? 
I don't. I'm waiting. I'm still waiting. <laughs> I'll let you know. You were supposed to say when they're five, because I have a four-year-old now. It's like the one little thing. It's like the thing you would never think that sets it off. And then they set off. I mean, to be honest, I, and I write about this in my book, I actually think that there's a window of parental enjoyment and it's between like six and 12 because they can toilet independently and they are not, you know, um, as emotionally volatile and then they turn 12 and then they hate you again. But like six to 12 is kind of magic. All right. Good to know. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> and if it's not, I'm going to come back. Check out. Okay. Check, I'm sorry. Come back to you. I apologize in advance. <laughs> um, so Kristen, you wrote an article in the Washington Post about coaching our kids through loss. You wrote yeah. this early on, earlier on in the pandemic. Um, have your, so first of all, can you just talk a little bit about what your advice in there was, but then maybe has that changed as we've continued on <laughs> down this journey? I know. What did I know about that? <laughs> um, no, I, th- I think it's still the same, which is, you know, that we have to find that balance between, you know, we want to affirm our kids' feelings of loss, um, but at the same time, we don't want to add to them. And so I was just seeing a lot of parents, especially at the beginning, you know, using language like oh, school is ruined or this is ruining their childhood or mm-hmm. they're going to be traumatized. And it's like, you know, there could be trauma and there's definitely losses. But we all, it's also really important to model for our kids that we can be resilient, that we can be flexible. Um, and so and it's 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 a balance. I mean, it's not easy. I think it's a tightrope that, that parents are all figuring out how to walk. But I just you know, I feel like we have to continually be telling our kids and ourselves, like, this is temporary. Um, We can find joy in the middle of this. Your childhood is not ruined. It's just different. But at the same time, all of these things that you're grieving are totally valid and your Mm -hmm. feelings of grief are completely valid. But it's like finding that the way to pivot, right? It's finding the way to like, okay, well, this year isn't going to look like we thought it would. But how can we make it look like something that we, that's different that we could still enjoy, you know? Yeah, I think that's really sage advice and find, I mean, it's ultimately finding the joy and the pivot, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's hard. That's an uphill climb sometimes. And it's, we don't get there every day. But, you know, for us, for our family, it's been like, okay, we've, I can look back and say, okay, this year we absolutely went to the beach more. We all read more. We started a family kind of reading time, and that's been really beautiful. We've gotten closer together as a family. Like, I can look back and see the things that have come from this that we didn't expect that mm-hmm. have been really beautiful. Now, that's not to say, oh, I'm so grateful for the pandemic because I'm not. I wish right. not, you know, I wish that there wasn't one. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's like we can hold all these things to be true at once that, like, it's actually been totally horrible. And there's been a ton of losses and disappointments, but there's also been some real beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about your family reading time. (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, don't get me wrong. They were kicking and screaming. Sure. I'm sure it was messy getting there, right? (laughs) Real messy. But, you know, it's like, again, you know, the the thing in the pandemic is like, we don't have anything happening. We were, we were an overscheduled family before. Like Mm -hmm. we were eating on the sidelines of practices and rehearsals. You know, we, everyone had something all the time and now we have nothing. I mean, we're in California. There's no sports. There's no nothing. Every evening's free, you know? And so as we're figuring out what to do with our long, 
<laughs> unscheduled evenings, you know, of course, it's like we eat our family meal and we've been doing these like table topics, which is really fun, but I really wanted to put reading in there. And so I instituted like, we're going to do 30 minutes of reading before we watch television. Um, and, you know, initially it was like, oh, this is lame. This is so dumb. But now I will like walk downstairs and they're doing it on their own. I love it's it. It's just become a habit. And, you know, what do they say? Two weeks to build a habit. And, you know, it, it took two weeks of complaining and now it's just a habit. And we're all, myself included, we're all reading more as a result. That's awesome. Yeah. What, so you went from an overscheduled family. What do you, whenever, I mean, normal is going to be, I don't know what normal is going to be for a long time. I'm like, Oh, we're just all going to be vaccinated. And it's going to be normal. And I no. clearly that's not the way the world is going it will be an evolving new normal for years probably. But are there things about the, the, the non-schedule that you will keep in your life going forward? Oh, I think so. I mean, I, I think that I can look back and realize like that we were just running at too hard of a pace Mm -hmm. and, and I, I see the benefits of slowing down and I really, what I really see the benefits of is teaching my kids how to, have a leisure life of their own, you know, like that almost like how to be instead of how to do. Mm. Um, I think that's been really valuable. We've all learned how to cook. It's almost like we've, you know, my kids are learning adult self-care skills right now, which is really beautiful. They, we didn't have time for that before. Yeah, that is, that's really, that is great. Especially at their ages. Yeah. I know. I, I mean, my kids are still young enough that there's there's not the overscheduling syndrome that for their ages, but I do, I am excited about that feeling where not everybody like not having to be overscheduled, right. Where that's yeah. like, okay. And that, that that's the, the norm. And, but I will say that I, the connecting with people, just like those in-person relationships, I am going to overschedule that whenever yes. I can. I miss that Absolutely. so, so much. Uh, I know. I We keep joking that when this is all over, we're going to have a party every night. <laughs> right? I just want my dinner table filled with people. I know. Me too. I do too. I miss it so much. I do too. Yeah. So that, so I'm going to, I'm going to happily, unabashedly overschedule yes. time with people. I think that that's a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kristen, thank you so much for your time today. Um, yeah. I loved hearing more about your family and I've just enjoyed following you. So it's really an honor to have you on the, the show today. I wanted to bring you to our end of podcast questions um, just to round us out. So you are somebody who is illuminating in your life, in your community, in the influencer world. And I'd love to hear who is somebody that's illuminating for you. I think, you know, I think that someone who is um, illuminating for me on the on the topic of race, um, I think that there's a couple of people who've been really instrumental for me. Um, let's see, I, I really appreciate, first of all, um, Lovey Ajayi, she is, um, she's actually a humor memoirist, and she's hmm. a comedy writer. But she also writes really insightfully about race, and I've always appreciated her voice. And she does it in a very approachable way and an understandable way. So she's someone who has always kind of lighted that path for me. 
Um, I think um, D-Ray is someone who I've followed for a long time, who's just been a major activist in the Black Lives Matter um, movement. And he's someone who I follow for a long time. Um, and then just in terms of, let me think, just in terms of parenting, I mean, I think, um, well, Brene Brown, I mean, she has been so helpful for me. And while her content isn't particularly specific to parenting, I just find it so helpful mm-hmm. um, and so interesting. And I, you know, I'm a clinician, so I love that all of her stuff is really steeped in research. Um, so that's always been really helpful to me. Yeah. Those are all, those are great examples. Yeah. Do you have a book recommendation? Hmm. Um, I think if, if people are really wanting to kind of start out on the path of looking at anti-racism, I think the book, how to, how to be an anti-racist, you, you can't go wrong there. Like that's just such a good one. Um, there's another book called the warmth of other sons that gives a really comprehensive background into racism. Like it kind of, you know, it's, it's the history. Um, that's a really good that one. book. Yeah. Really it's painful, good. but it is captivating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would say those two books are the best place to start. Those are great recommendations. And then, okay. So this podcast actually started on a, um, through a, a supper club and I listened to your most recent podcast, um, your selfie talking about all of the food delivery options that you have. So first of all, thank you for those because there's a few things in there that I'm going to have to implement for our family, but it sounds like food, your family revolves, has a lot of revolving around food. So would love, do you have a recipe that you guys love that you go to that you share with others? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I will admit I'm not a recipe person. I am a, I like to cook, but I am definitely a throw things together. Like if someone asked me like, well, how many cups or teaspoons? I would be like, I don't know. Like, oh man, I'm the opposite person. Um, but I will say that our go-to lately has been, we are like obsessed with roasting vegetables. Like Mm. I got these two huge sheet pans that fit the entire length of my oven. I actually, I measured my oven and ordered sheet pans to fit because there's obviously so many of us also at home. And then I got um, some parchment liners that fit those perfectly. And I have just been obsessed with roasting any vegetable that comes into the house. Okay. I love that. My next question is, do you have an air fryer? I do. And I love my air fryer. Okay. Do you roast your vegetables in there? I don't. Well, sometimes it, it kind of depends. I mean, to be honest, there's so many of us that that gets difficult. Yeah, true. Um, but if it's just me, then yes. <sighs> you know, if it's just or just two of us, then yes. But if it's for the whole family, it's going to go in the oven. I, w- I was clearly living under a rock for a long time because we just got an air fryer. And I'm like, how did we not have one of these before? It's awesome. <laughs> they, my kids use it all the time, too. It's it is used every day in my house. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And then my last question is, what is your message for the world? I think, I hope my message for the world is empathy. You know, I think that that has just been, um, the space that I've, that I've tried to inhabit on the internet for a long time. I used to, you know, when I'm, when my blog started, I did a series called what I want you to know, and it invited people of all different walks of life, people who wanted others to understand better about what it's like to be deaf or what it's like to have, 
a genetic syndrome or what it's like to have a child with autism. And I just provided a space where people could talk about those things in the hope that readers would have more empathy for those situations. And so, you know, I, and, and even now in talking about race or, uh, or, um, immigration issues, I, I just, I hope people will, you know, will broaden their minds and their hearts and have more empathy towards others. That's a big one for me. Thank you, Kristen. And thank you friends for being here. If you love today's episode or you've been loving the Illuminate podcast and you haven't done so, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's how we bring new listeners into the show. Thanks so much and have a wonderful week.